Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles this morning and turn once again to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Our attention will be focused this morning on verses 19 through 21. Philippians 1, 19 through 21. If you were listening and, and here when we began the service this morning, you might remember that we began with this wonderful passage, a call to worship from Psalm 34, where the psalmist says, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I love that verse. I told somebody the other day, I, I don't just love preaching, I don't just love singing, I love corporate worship. I love doing what we're doing right now. I do love to preach and I do love to sing, but there is something significant about the gathering together of the people of God to exalt Jesus Christ. And we do this not simply by tradition, we do it because we've been commanded to do it. All throughout scriptures, there's commands for the people together in unified, identifiable groups of believers in order to worship. And so it is, Psalm 34 is a call for that. It says, magnify the Lord with me. It's like the worship pastor is saying, magnify the Lord with me and let us together exalt his name. I love the words that the psalmist chooses there. It is a call to magnify the Lord, to exalt his name together, meaning that when we are gathered together for this purpose, we come for the purpose of magnifying the Lord. This is really important for us. It's not just a matter of coming together to hear a sermon or to hear songs or to fellowship. We exist together that our presence together might magnify the Lord. That's interesting because the word magnify means to make something appear larger, to enlarge something. You say, well, how in the world are, are we supposed to magnify the Lord? How, how do we make the Lord appear larger? To which I would respond, the same way we do it with Jupiter. We are coming up in a week, March 7th and 8th, in which Jupiter will be visible in the eastern sky between dusk and dawn if it's a clear night and you know exactly where to look and exactly what to look for, which I don't, you could find Jupiter. It's out there somewhere. And if you're with a bunch of other people that also don't know, then just with confidence, point to one of them and say, look, there's Jupiter. They won't know the difference. It's out there somewhere. And the reason it's so hard to find is because it looks so small. It looks incredibly insignificant. It is this tiny speck out there in the solar system. And what we do not realize is that it is actually the largest planet in the solar system. Do you realize that you could fit 1,300 Earths inside of Jupiter? 1,300 Earths inside of Jupiter. Did you know that taking the weight of all of the other planets combined, Jupiter is 2.5 times heavier than all of the other planets combined. Jupiter is a massive planet that appears to us a small, insignificant speck. Well, what do we do? Well, we, we get a telescope. And we look at it, Jupiter, and even with the greatest telescope, we really can't fully grasp the size of it, but it does help. 
And how do we know that it's that large? Because we have a telescope, and telescopes can look and can start to discover the mass and the size of something when they compare it to Earth and to other things. A telescope magnifies and takes something that seems like a tiny speck and shows us how significant it actually is. Now, you know this as well as I do. To most of the world, Christ is nothing but a tiny speck. He is small and insignificant and distant. Most people don't feel the weight of Jesus Christ. They don't see him as anything that has any significance in their life or any weight to their decisions. They see him as small and insignificant and distant. And our job is to magnify the Lord by the way in which we live, the way in which we sing, the way in which we hear the word preached, so that we might take Christ, who appears small, insignificant, and distant, and reveal him as great and glorious and near. That deserves more than one amen. Thank you. That, that's what we do. So we invite someone to church, and they think nothing of Christ. They see the way in which we are engrossed in the worship of Christ, and we are feeding and feasting on the Word of God, and all of a sudden, it functions like a telescope where the one that they thought was insignificant now begins to appear to them something more. You say, well, what does that have to do with Philippians chapter 1? Well, it is that which Paul is saying in Philippians 1 he wants his life to be all about. We looked last week at Paul saying his ambition is the gospel to be advanced. So whether I'm in prison or free, I want the gospel to be advanced. And he's just sharing the gospel with everyone. And all kinds of people are getting saved even while in prison. He is now going to go on and say, not only is my ambition to live a life that advances the gospel, my ambition is to live a life in which in this body Christ is magnified. Look at what he says starting at the end of verse 18, where he says, Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Verse 20, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, here it is, Christ will be honored. Some of your versions may say Christ will be exalted. I think the New King James actually says Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. What Paul is saying is that I have been given this physical body. It is given to me as a gift from God. And the reason God has given me this physical flesh and blood body is that I might use it to be a living representation of Christ. That's why you have a physical body. What Paul is saying is that what I want is whether I live or whether I die, that God would use this body to magnify Christ. That this morning it is my prayer that God would use this six foot three, 185 pound solid rock body to exalt Christ. Five, eight and a little puny is the truth, but if you didn't laugh, I was just going to go with it. But the, there's more laughter than I was expecting, a little discouraging. The point is, 
is that what Paul is saying is we've been given this body and, and this body exists to honor Christ. And listen, Paul is not just saying that it is his desire for his physical body be used to magnify Christ, but he tells us in Ephesians 3.19 that everything he is telling us is not only for our encouragement, but for our example. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. And he, he actually says in 3.19, he says in 3.17, I'm sorry, brothers, join in imitating me. Living in such a way where my life is an example to you. And so it is that God's desire for us this morning is to embrace this ambition of a Christ-magnifying life. I mean, what better could be said about you? At the end of your life, that you magnified Christ, you made Christ, which seems small and insignificant, to appear large and glorious and near. So how do we, how do, we do that? How do we live a Christ-magnifying life? I believe Paul gives us three very clear ways from his own example writing from a Roman prison. I encourage you to write these down this morning. The first one is this. We magnify Christ by suffering joyfully. Write that down. We magnify Christ by suffering joyfully. That is the point of verse 19. He moves from the past to the present to the future. He says in verse 18, I don't care what anyone else is saying about me, just that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I will rejoice. And then he goes on to speak a little bit more of the future. Yes, and I will rejoice. I will continue to rejoice. And so what is this source of rejoicing as Paul is in a Roman prison? Well, verse 19 gives us a clue because it says, For I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. The source of Paul's rejoicing is rooted in some confidence that he has. For I know there is something Christ, know, I mean Paul knows. Well, what, is, what does he know? I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. As a matter of fact, this entire passage oozes with confidence. For I know, he says, this will turn out for my deliverance. Verse 20, I will not be put to shame. But with full courage, Christ, now as always, will be honored in my body. He's oozing with confidence. His confidence, the source of his rejoicing, is this simple phrase, this is going to turn out for my deliverance. Well, the key is, well, what does he mean by the word deliverance? I can tell you this, he doesn't mean his own physical safety. He doesn't mean deliverance from prison. We know that because he goes on in verse 20 and says, whether I live or whether I die. So he doesn't know whether he's going to live or die. We get a clue later in chapter 1 that he feels pretty confident that he's going to be released from prison, but he doesn't know that. So his confidence is not in the fact that he's going to live as far as he knows he may die in a Roman prison. But his confidence is rooted in something greater than that. His deliverance is not a reference to getting out of prison. His deliverance is a reference to the work of God he believes is going to happen through his life. When this situation does not end up in his shame, but ends up in God's glory. You see, when Paul uses that word deliverance, it is a word that Paul uses throughout the New Testament. And he always uses it 
to mean the work that God does in our life to take a mess and make it beautiful. It's often translated salvation, which is what salvation is, right? It's God taking a mess and making it beautiful. Can any of you give a testimony of God taking a mess and making it beautiful? Say amen. Amen. This is what our whole life is. All of us are a mess that God is very slowly but surely making into something beautiful. So Paul uses this word in saying that I'm confident of this. I'm confident that even though there are those outside of prison saying that this is undermining my ministry and this is an evidence of the fact that God does not love me and he's forgotten of me, I'm confident God is going to take this situation and make it something glorious. One of the reasons we know that is because Paul has taken this phrase from the Old Testament. All the, old, the New Testament writers do this. They quote from the Old Testament. Paul right here in verse 19 is quoting from the book of Job. Job 13, 16, you know the story. Job is suffering. He has some friends that are giving him advice, not good advice. And one of the things they're saying is this, Job, there is no way you're blameless in this situation. You did something to bring on this suffering, which is almost always one of the enemy's first attacks to make you think that the reason you're sick or the reason you're suffering is because of something you've done wrong. Are there times in which we suffer because of our own sin? Absolutely. But there are sometimes we suffer because God in his sovereign will knows that we need to suffer to become the people God wants us to become. And Job was blameless and yet God was allowing Job to suffer in order to glorify himself. But all of Job's friends says, no, 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 Job, you did something wrong. Trying to make him feel guilty for his suffering. And his response is this. Though God slay me, I will hope in him and this will be my deliverance. He says, God may kill me. I may die in this suffering. But even if he slays me, I am confident this will turn out for my deliverance. Not my physical deliverance. He just said he might die. But what he's meaning is this. Even if God slays me, this is going to end up in such a way that God is glorified. That God takes a messy situation and makes something beautiful out of it. Job was convinced that God, God was going to use his suffering to demonstrate himself, to prove himself. So here's what Paul says. I know I'm locked up in a prison. I don't know whether I'm going to die here or whether I'm going to be released. But here's what I know. I know that my God is working everything after the counsel of his will. He has promised that he who began a good work in me will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He has promised me that nothing that touches me that does not first go through his hand. He has promised me that our God is working all things for our good and for his glory. Therefore, with confidence, I can say... I will be delivered. That God will make something beautiful out of this mess. Paul is not thrown off by this. This is not shattering his faith. He is confident in the Lord. You say, how do we rejoice in our suffering? We rejoice in our suffering when even in the midst of the greatest pain, we have an absolute confidence that God has not forgotten us. He is with us. And listen, even more than that, he is for us. He is orchestrating all things for our good and for his glory. And the only reason I can rejoice is not because I love the suffering, but because I love what the suffering is going to produce. God glorifying fruit. There are some 
things that can only be seen about God when his people suffer. It reminds me of the words of this hymn, when darkness veils his lovely face. Listen to that phrase. When darkness veils the lovely face of God, I rest in his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. There's this confidence in those who know the Lord that can say, I am confident that this suffering will turn out for good. And so Paul rejoices because what he wants most is not his own safety. What he wants most is a body that magnifies Christ. And you know story after story that you've heard of people who have suffered and they have done it in such a way where at the end of your suffering, you're simply just amazed at the goodness and the grace and strength of God in their life. That's what Paul's saying. I want Christ to be magnified by suffering in such a way that points people to the goodness and sufficiency of our God. Those who think that in the midst of suffering, God cannot help, Paul says, I want to be a demonstration of the greatness of God. So when they see me suffer, they see Christ magnified. And all of our suffering is an opportunity to magnify Christ by suffering joyfully. So we magnify Christ by suffering joyfully. The second one is this. Please write this down. We also magnify Christ by living humbly. Living humbly. We saw the confidence of Paul, for I know, I know, I know this will turn out for my deliverance. This is what he says. He says, for I know, look at this, that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul is not only confident in the end, he's confident in the means. Now, we're going to talk about this a lot when we get to Philippians 2. This is very important. It is one of the keys to understanding how we grow in Christ's likeness. But the end is important and the means is important. So Paul says in Philippians 1, I know that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So Paul is confident if God starts a work in you, he's going to complete it. But then Paul also goes on to say, now work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So which is it? Is God going to do it or am I going to do it? And the answer is, yes. That God is going to complete his work by your spirit-empowered will doing the right things. By reading your Bible and studying and praying and being involved in a church and committed to a local assembly. And so it is here. Paul says, I know without question this situation is going to turn out for God's glory. I'm going to be not put to shame, but God is going to be glorified. But I also know the only way that's going to happen, listen, is if you pray for me and the Spirit helps me. If you don't pray and the Spirit doesn't help, I'm not going to make it. What I love about that is it is absolute confidence matched with deep, abiding humility. You know those things go together, right? I'm fully confident in what God is going to do. At the same time, I am fully aware that if it is not for the sustaining grace of God, your prayers and the Spirit's help, I will never make it out of this situation in a way that God gets the glory. Have you ever felt that way? 
Like, I believe God's going to make something great out of this, but right now, I don't see it, and I don't have the strength for it. And listen, when you get to that moment, there are two things you need more than you need anything else. At that moment, when you feel that the weight of your suffering is crushing in on you, and you literally don't know if you can make it another day, you don't know if you can continue to be sustained, what you need is this. You need the prayers of others and the help of the Holy Spirit. thinking this morning, I went to Rick Britton's Sunday school class, and I, I was just there for the first few minutes, and I loved all of the prayer requests. And, you know, giving a prayer request in some ways is an act of humility because you're acknowledging you need something you don't have. But have you ever noticed that we're much better at asking for, for us to pray for other people than we are ourselves? Like, it's easy to say, I need you to pray for so-and-so and so-and-so. It's much harder for you to raise your hand in the midst of Sunday school and say, could you pray for me? I really struggled with sin and temptation this week. That's how it should happen. If you did that, everyone might gasp, but you should be able to do that. You know what? People would want more details, wouldn't they? It's just sick. That's how people are. Well, we'd love to pray more specifically if you could uh, give us more details of the exact sin there you got going on. There's something that's humbling about saying to someone, I don't know if I can do this. Like, I don't know, I don't know if I can make it. And I, I'm fairly confident if you don't pray for me, I'm not going to make it. What Paul's saying is, listen, I, I really feel confident God's going to do this, but he's not going to do it without your prayers. He's going to do it through your prayers. So how does all that work and the sovereignty of God? I don't know. It doesn't matter. God uses our prayers to help people. And so, can I just say, when you say you're going to pray for someone, pray for them. Probably best to just do it right then. Because God is using those prayers to sustain someone and by the help of the Holy Spirit. I've been reading John in my own personal time with the Lord. I've, I've been in John 14, 15, 16, 17, and over and over, Jesus says, I'm going to send the helper, the Holy Spirit. And this thought came to my mind, if the Spirit is given to me to be my helper... I should be able to point to identifiable ways in which I am being helped by the Spirit. Right? Paul's saying, I'm going to make it, but not without consistent help of the Spirit. So what I would say to you is this. If you want to live a life that magnifies Christ in the midst of your difficulties, ask people to pray for you. Tell them your struggle. Ask for them to pray and go moment by moment to God, asking for the Spirit of God to help sustain you, knowing that without those two things, you actually won't make it. I mean, have you ever realized that our neediness magnifies Christ? You know, God loves weakness. He loves neediness. Just read 2 Corinthians 12 when Paul is saying, I'm going to boast in my weakness. Why? Because weakness has a distinct way of magnifying Christ. God loves to humble us to such an extent where we know we need the Spirit and we know we need the prayers of others. This body that God has given you exists so that you might always be pointing people to Christ. I was studying this passage a while back and I hate when this happens. I like to preach and prepare in a way that I feel like I know all of your sin and God convicts you. As opposed to me. It doesn't usually work that way. Generally the best preaching is one that comes out of personal conviction. And so I was studying this text and I realized, listen, this is, a, just, this is disgusting. I know none of you do this. 
but I, I, the Lord convicted me of a tendency that I have in the midst of conversations to do two things. First of all, to bring the conversation back to me. And when there is a statement of something good going on, to subtly make sure they know that it's because of me. You do this too. As if, boy, Pastor, I tell you, things are really going good on Sunday morning. Well, you know, yeah, I've been working hard on it. And, you know, just trying to subtly say things that will get the attention back on me. And every time we bring the attention back on us, it's taking it away from Christ. Every time. So what Paul is doing here is he's not saying, listen, I tell you, I know I'm going to make it. You know why? Because I just, I've been here before. I've done this. I know how to work the prison system. And uh, I've just got a lot of strength. No, Paul says, listen, I know I'm going to make it. But I need you to know that if God doesn't come through, I'm not going to make it. He's just constantly putting the attention back on Christ. And if you'll recognize in your life, we have a tendency to always want the glory. But anytime we get the glory, Christ can't get the glory. So my plead for you, if you want to live a Christ-magnifying life, is to always give the glory back to Christ. Show the help of the Spirit as the reason that you made it through. Show the prayers of others as the reason you made it through. Just constantly deter the attention and put it back on Jesus. He says, I know I'll make it, but only through the help of the Spirit. And so he is magnifying Christ, not only by suffering joyfully, but by living humbly. Let me give you the last one as you look at verse 20. We not only do that, but we magnify Christ by speaking courageously. We magnify Christ by suffering joyfully. We magnify Christ by living humbly. And we magnify Christ by speaking courageously. Verse 20. It is my eager expectation and hope. I love those two words together. I'm expecting it and I'm confident in it. That I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Now, there is a comparison that is made in this verse between being ashamed and courage. You see that? I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored or magnified or exalted in my body. So Paul's saying the opposite of courage is shame. The opposite of shame is, is courage. Now what he means by shame is not that inner feeling of embarrassment that we get when something goes wrong or we do something we wish we hadn't have done. The idea of shame here is a little deeper than that. It, it is really the shame of a life that was wasted. We say this a lot. Boy, what a shame. So-and-so did this and so-and-so did that. Well, what a shame. Paul's trying to get us to understand is there is one kind of life that's a shame, and that's the life that doesn't live faithfully for Jesus Christ. That's the life that's a shame. We often are shameful about a lot of things, but the truth is the only thing that should really cause shame is that we have not lived life for God's glory. And even in that shame, if you come to Jesus Christ, he can remove that shame. So it is that Paul is saying, listen, I don't want to live a life that's a shame, meaning I don't want to get at the end of this suffering and realize that I haven't lived for Christ. That would be a shame. It would be a shame if I got stuck in prison but didn't live in such a way that Christ was glorified. It is possible to waste your suffering by not living for God's glory. Paul says, I don't want to come to the end of this and be ashamed, but instead of that, 
Look, with full courage, now as always, I want Christ to be honored. That word courage is used often in the New Testament. It always means the same thing. It always means boldly proclaiming Christ. Boldly proclaiming Christ. What he's saying is this. I'm in this situation. I'm in prison. I'm suffering. I have two options. I can either live in such a way where I don't give God the glory, where I either defer attention back to myself, I suffer with grumbling and contempt, I'm angry at God, I don't have confidence in God. All of that stuff would lead to, at the end of this suffering, my life being ashamed because I wasted it. Or the opposite could happen. I could consistently talk openly about the way in which the Lord has helped me, pointing back to the sustaining grace of Christ, pointing back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If I speak courageously, my life will not be ashamed. Christ will be honored to the extent that I openly speak about the way in which God has helped me and sustained me. Listen, the shameful life is not a life that is lived in prison or a life of being maligned or questioned or dying with no material possessions. The life that is a shame is the life that failed to speak faithfully about the goodness and grace of Christ. And I'm convicted by that. I'm convicted because if I'm honest, it's much easier for me to get here to open the Bible and speak courageously about Christ than it is to go out there and speak courageously about Christ. I was just asking myself this question this week as I was preparing. Listen, ask yourself this question. Why don't I, why don't I speak more about Christ? Why don't I just tell everybody about Jesus? Why, what, is, what is this bit of self-preservation inside of me that refuses to speak openly about Christ? Why do I not just live with unhindered speech? It happened to me yesterday. I, I didn't think about this till earlier this morning. I was convicted, and, and, I, and I thought about the fact that someone saw me with all of our kids, and we generally get attention when we go out places, and they wonder if they're all ours, and if they're all from the same wife, you know, it's just everybody's wondering, all these kids, and is that on purpose, like it's a mistake, and you're, it drives me crazy. So, uh, someone said, boy, I tell you, it's a big family you got there, and I said, boy, I'm, I'm really lucky, and right as I said that, I literally, it was in passing, I walked away, and I thought, that's, that's the stupidest thing in the world to say. Luck doesn't even exist. And what a carnal thing to say. And what I should have said is that, I know, isn't God great? I love that because people often, like they'll even see me with four daughters and act like somehow that's a burden to me. Boy, I tell you, it must be tough, four daughters. As if it's anything but a blessing from God. And what I'm saying is God has given us all of these opportunities to just live with unhindered speech. So when someone says, that's a lot of kids, I can respond, I know, isn't God good? Isn't that an incredible blessing? My quiver is full and I'm blessed. That may be a little churchy to say. <laughs> but it looks good on a piece of, re uh, piece of reclaimed wood and put on the kitchen, doesn't it? So. Do you realize every moment is just like countless opportunities to just speak in an unhindered way, to just talk about Jesus and to, to say the real reason that we're smiling and rejoicing, the real reason that we've made it through the suffering, to just keep pointing back to Jesus. What Paul is saying is this, and I'm not going to come to the end of this suffering and look back and think, what a shame that I wasted it. 
I'm going to look back and realize that every opportunity I just pointed people back to the help of the Spirit, the power of the prayers of God's people, the sustaining grace of God, so that with full courage, now and always, Christ will be exalted in my body. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's one ambition. And it all flows out of what he's going to say next in verse 21. I'm going to say more about this later, but I want to just mention it briefly as we close in a few moments. By close, I don't mean close your Bibles. We're not totally done. We're landing the plane, all right? Verse 21. For, now that's important because Paul's saying, listen, the reason I am able to magnify Christ and suffer joyfully and live humbly and proclaim the gospel boldly, why? For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I love that verse, but I've always found it a bit confusing. Anybody else, like, people will tell me, that's my life verse. I go, yeah, I love that. Not completely sure exactly what it means, but I get it. I mean, it sounds great. It's a good life verse. For me to live is Christ. Do you know that in some ways it might even be a little bit more confusing in the original language? Because in the Greek, there's no verb. The, the word is there. For me to live is Christ and die is gain. That doesn't exist in the Greek. In the Greek, it says this. For me to live, Christ. And to die, gain. Now, what preachers love to do is to fill in the blank. Well, there's no verb there, so we can say, for me to live is to preach Christ. I love that one because I'm good at that one, right? So I'll just insert whatever I'm good at. For me to live is to serve Christ. For me to live is exalt Christ. For me to live is to honor Christ. We always want to fill in the blank. And even the translators, in order to help us a little bit, added the is. For me to live is Christ. But listen, listen. Could it be that God wrote it exactly the way it needed to be written? And to leave it without the verb is actually what gives us its great it means. And every time we try to add something to it, we actually diminish its power. Could it be? I'm just saying, maybe God knew what he was doing. Maybe the point that is trying to be made is this. Is Paul is saying, for me, life, Christ. Christ, from morning to evening, from beginning to end, life, what's the word? Christ, life equals Christ. What Paul is saying is that there's nothing that matters more in his life than Christ. Christ has become his life. And the only reason that dying is gain is because Christ is Paul's life. Listen, dying is gain when you see in your life that life is all about Christ, because then in dying, you just get more life. Dying is not the end of life, it's the inheritance of more life if Christ is your life. If you're terrified of death, it's because Christ is not your life. If Christ is your life, you look forward to death, in which you will experience more of him. So, here, so here's how we'll summarize all of it, knowing that he says that this flows out of verse 21, for me to live as Christ and die as gain. Listen, here's how we'll sum up the whole thing. When Christ becomes your life, your life magnifies Christ. 
When Christ becomes your life, your life magnifies Christ. Your life will magnify whatever is your life. Whatever it is you love most, whatever you treasure most, whatever you want most, it is that thing which your life will magnify. It will come out of you whether you want it to come out of you or not. Your life is like a projector. And it is projecting your heart and what you love and what you desire. And whether you realize it or not, everything that comes out of your mouth, everything you do is simply projecting that which you value. And it is that which your life will esteem and magnify. So what Paul is saying is this. If you can get to the place where you really love Christ, you are feeding on him and you're enjoying him, then it is that which will be magnified from your life. It really comes down to this. How do you fill in this blank? For to me, to live, yeah, what is it? I mean, what is it for you? What is it that you treasure the most, that you love the most, that you want the most, because that's what you're going to magnify. And the goal of these words is to say, God, I want Christ to be such a part of my life that my life is projecting him to everyone. Not because I'm even trying, but simply because it is a reflection of what I love most. And I just pray that somehow, by God's grace and for God's glory, we would live those kinds of lives. Love Christ and magnify him for his glory. Amen? May this body magnify Christ. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.